Our scripture lesson today is from the Gospel of Luke. It is a post-resurrection story that takes place on the same day as those first women went to find Jesus in the tomb and he was gone, the tomb was empty. Hear now these words from the Gospel of Luke. On that same day, Easter day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had just happened. And while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were prevented from recognizing him. When they came to Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going on ahead, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And after he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and explained the scriptures for us? May God bless this hearing of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have always resonated in one way or another with this particular text from Scripture, that sense that two friends are walking along their way, and as they talk about what is going on in their lives, they find that they encounter Jesus. And yet it's only afterwards that they realize that he had been with them. And they realize it because their hearts were on fire, not in some heartburn medical kind of sense, but because of that spiritual something more that comes in the midst of friendship and shared experience. I can imagine this story taking place in the hallways at school or while walking your dog or at track practice or after an unexpected meetup with a friend at a coffee shop. Wherever it is, you and your friend explain to one another the things that trouble you, and there it is, that spiritual something more which feels as if your heart, as John Wesley says, is strangely warmed. There is something beautiful and hopeful about these Jesus encounters after the crucifixion. Easter opens up with so many possibilities. Jesus the gardener, Jesus the hiking companion, Jesus the fisherman, Jesus standing at the fork in the road, Jesus the unexpected dinner guest. There is a coming and going, an elusive quality to these post-resurrection encounters of Jesus. He's there and then he's not. He's present and tangible and yet somehow mysterious, a heart strangely warmed, a meal shared, a recognition. There is hope and promise and a diversity of experiences that give us this sense that there's no one way to encounter Jesus in our lives. As these experiences were collected and told and retold by the gospel writers in those early decades after Jesus' 
No one gospel writer chose to tell the story in the same way as another. As the stories of Jesus' life and death and Easter mystery began to circulate in the centuries that followed, Christians affirmed again these multiple ways of telling the story of Jesus. Nobody said, let's only read the Gospel of Luke or let's forget the Gospel of Matthew. Four Gospels, multiple post-resurrection stories, and hundreds of ways for us as Jesus' followers to let those stories live in our lives. I think about all this today because it's Confirmation Sunday when 38 ninth graders will stand up and confirm their faith. Every year, confirmands write a faith statement, and consequently, every year, I ponder the possibility of asking adults to do this too, write a faith statement. Would you? Maybe next year, I'll actually go through with it and offer an adult faith statement writing class. Taking time to write down, in essence, a snapshot of your current ways ways of noticing God in your life can really deepen your sense of God's presence, I think. I've read over 300 faith statements from your favorite teenagers at Kenilworth Union Church. Well, the oldest of them turned 20 this year. But when I think over what they've written, the power of it, the diversity, the threads of wisdom, and the tender fragility of wondering about God's presence in their lives, I can't help but think of these beautiful post-resurrection stories Just like the post-resurrection stories, there's a unity and diversity found in the faith statements of confirmants. And yet there's this unparalleled uniqueness to each voice. Somehow every year I meet the mystery of Jesus afterward, asking myself, was your heart not strangely warmed when speaking with these ninth graders about the story of God's love so embodied? This year, uh, three, maybe four, or maybe 38 faith statements stood out. Uh, There was one faith statement that was, in its totality, a theology of frogs, one a theology of moose encounters, one a theology of mountaintop experiences, another a theology of sacred places far from home. One evoked Martin Luther King Jr., More than one wrestled with this inherited idea of God as an old white man with a long flowing beard. I'm sure you can picture what I'm describing. And others pondered God in less anthropomorphic manifestations such as air or light or presence. And I've never had so many students tell me about the ways in which their dog helps them see God in this world. Held within these dense testimonies of God's presence is the lived experience of every person. Take this theology of frogs, for example. I'm inspired and intrigued by this inclination to weave such an often unnoticed creature into one's faith statement. It is in some ways a theology of liberation in which God exhibits a preferential option for the poor, the small, the overlooked, the ones with little power in this world, the ones getting a raw deal. You know who I'm talking about. Frogs are vulnerable to pollution or habitat loss or climate change or uh, over-harvesting for food. 
frogs cannot ask multinational corporations to stop clear-cutting forests or ask factory farmers to stop spraying pesticides. God is on the side of the frogs. God suffers with the frogs. God mourns with the hundreds of frog species that have been lost in the Anthropocene. Our life-centered God has unlimited love. Our life-centered God has unlimited love. It's universal in scope, and yet it is infinitely tender, desiring the well-being of each creature for its own sake. It is a specific kind of love, a love that includes that one particular frog that peeps and clucks and ribbits nearby as you watch the sunset from your backyard. A theology of frogs can tune us toward this life-centered God who in caring for that one particular frog's well-being must also in turn care for us, yes, for the largest and smallest worries and hopes and prayers that emerge from our lives. If you look carefully around Kenilworth Union Church, you will find frogs tucked in holy places. They have for many years been a symbol for God's love in the preschool and the Sunday school, an acronym, forever relying on God. Forever relying on God. And God loves the frogs. God loves us because God loves the frogs and God loves the frogs because nothing in all creation escapes God's notice. One theologian even suggests that such sacrificial love of the God of life extends to mountains and rivers and stars and even the wind. Anywhere in all creation it is possible for our hearts to become as if on fire such that we know that the presence of Jesus Christ is near because God's love is all in all and in each of us. Turned another direction, a theology of frogs might remind us that no matter how our faith is nudged into existence, there are others to meet us there, to walk with us along the way, to share in our story of God's mystery. It doesn't take much to see this global theology of frogs take place. Frogs are these liminal creatures. They live on land and in water. They keep vigil in ponds and marshes and lakes and meadows and trees. And the predictability of frogs' habitats and mating, mating rhythms allowed early agricultural communities the ability to know when the raining time was coming. And because of that, frogs became an ancient symbol of the primordial waters out of which all creation sprang to life. So frog theologies pop up on every continent in Paleolithic cave drawings and Sumerian epics, in Egyptian and Greek and Native American and Mesoamerican and Aboriginal Australian theologies. In one Mayan religion, gods are associated with the rain god Chak. In our own country, Chief Seattle, 150 years ago, defined the quality of one's life by the ability to listen to the arguments of the frogs around the pond at night. As for a theology of frogs that really makes you go, wow, I found out that in Hinduism, the primordial frog, Mahamanduka, symbolizes the life force and supports the serpent of time on whose back Vishnu slept while he dreamt the cosmos into being. And back in our own sacred tradition, our own theological hometown, some Christian theologians so in tune with nature to have noticed the possibility of frogs drawing near to Jesus 
have envisioned Christ resurrected amid the croaking of frogs announcing the coming of summer. Within every creature encounter in God's wide world, be it moose or honeybee or hummingbird or dog, there is the possibility to encounter Christ in this post-resurrection world. Not all of us will specifically wonder where the frogs are within the mystery of Easter, but we each have our own question that we tend to ask. In other words, if you think the way you've been talking about it, experiencing God is unusual or odd, there is probably someone else in, in Christian thought who is wondering a similar thing. There are many conversation partners on this journey together. You do not need to be alone in your way of encountering God. And in fact, there is joy and illumination and amplification when we talk together about God in our lives. I think we encountered that this year around tables in the Centennial Room, yes. The theologies held within us echo and shape our own unique and authoritative understandings of Jesus. And we bring those held within and between us as we share our lives together as Christians, as we vow and promise to walk together these long roads. We walk the way together with one another in baptism, in confirmation, at the communion table, in all the ways that we sorrow and celebrate and mourn and live the joys of this life together. It is as if our hearts become on fire and together we can point to the divine that exuberant energy which is equally at home in the vast nothingness between galaxies and the explosion of stars and the strangely toxic atmosphere of Venus and the tenderness of a deer protecting her fawn and the hunger of a lion and the ordered procession of the stars and the chaos of a refugee camp or a storm. In all of this, there is hope that together, all of us, as the body of Christ, the church, might be knit together by Jesus Christ, the one who walks with us, the one who opens our eyes and leaves us knowing that we are never alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. <laughs>